Hello, and welcome to the Quipster Film Review Podcast. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the film critic for the website Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews for 20 years, and you can read all of my written work at that website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Today, I'm going to be looking at the latest Coen Brothers film called Hail Caesar. It's a comedy, and if you know the Coen Brothers, you know they're very well-liked in the Hollywood industry, as well as among the film critics and the film buffs out there. And normally, they're in consideration for Oscars. Now, this one's coming out in February, which is kind of a, a little bit of a dead zone for film releases. Usually, you have your romantic comedies and your counter-programming because of Valentine's Day and whatnot, and it's not quite in the summer season, so you don't really get a lot of films that are going to be huge blockbusters to come out during this time. However, given the amount of talent on board within the course of this film, it is weird that it was pushed out of the Oscar contention and into a an early February release. However, now that I've seen it, I can see why, because it's definitely a film that's going to have a hard time finding connection with many audiences out there. Before I get to the review, I'll just mention that this is a PG-13 release. It does have some suggestive content and smoking, which is definitely something the MPAA has been considering for the last few years. It runs one hour and 40 minutes, and the cast... Even though most people associate George Clooney as being the star of the film, he's more of a supporting player. I guess the most screen time goes to Josh Brolin. He's kind of the uh, the linchpin for all of the other side stories that happen in this film. George Clooney, I'd probably give second billing, even though he's not in it a lot. Alden Ehrenreich, kind of a newcomer on the scene, is in this film probably about as much as Clooney. And we also have very small roles for Tilda Swinton, Channing Tatum, Scarlett Johansson, and Ray Fiennes. Uh, and there are a lot of cameo appearances in the film, which I won't go into too much detail on, because I think that discovering the cameos are part of the film's experience, I guess. Uh, the directors, of course, are Joel and Ethan Cohen, who also write the screenplay. Now, I've enjoyed most of the films by the Cohen brothers, but there are occasional films, usually they're comedies, in which I do find too little to connect with. You know, I think The Lady Killers is probably my least favorite of their films, and that's a primary example of a comedy that seems to exist in some sort of plane in which I, as the viewer, am tone deaf to whatever humor is supposed to be in there. There are films that a lot of people do like that I also miss in terms of their effect. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou is beloved by some, but I found it to be uh, devoid of tonal cohesion. And despite my love of Homer's The Odyssey to inspire it, it really kind of missed the mark with me. Although I do like it in parts, I'm also mystified by the rampant fervor for The Big Lebowski, which might be blasphemous to some people out there, I know, but I, I like The Big Lebowski, but I I don't know. Some people consider it one of their favorite films, if not their favorite film of all time. And I guess the funny bone is in the arm of the beholder, because I find it amusing in spots, but generally I find it a little too slapdash in certain respects. I guess that's what makes us all different and what makes cult comedies become cult classics. Now you can count Kale Caesar among the Coen Brothers films that fail to jail for me in a satisfying way. I'd probably say it's my second least favorite of the Coen Brothers films, although there are some things to like about the film. The film, in terms of its plot, is set in Hollywood back in the early 1950s. Josh Brolin is playing Eddie Maddox. He's an executive of the fictional Capitol Pictures film studio, and he's tasked with fixing a host of extracurricular scandals that the contracted star performers of Capitol Pictures are engaged in, and he's trying to 
make sure that they, these stars stay out of the tabloids and potentially ruin the big-budget prestige pictures that they're set to appear in. Now, one such problem involves the most bankable box office draw of the studio, Baird Whitlock, who is played by George Clooney. He goes missing from the set of his sprawling biblical epic. Uh, that epic seems to be kind of a, a hybrid of Quo Vadis and Ben-Hur, and he ends up getting kidnapped, kind of, by a group of communists in the industry that choose him to impart their philosophies during these private meetings and such, and it requires much of Eddie Mannix's attention to keep anyone from knowing about until he figures out what's going on. Now, there are other side stories in the film. I don't think that they bear necessity in order to go into. I'll, I'll allude to them a little bit later in this review. Basically, it's just a collection of all of these different things that Eddie Mannix has to fix, but really it's just an excuse for the Coen brothers to spotlight in their film, uh, just a collection of sporadically interesting skit moments uh, and a hodgepodge of other interesting ideas that they may have had about that era that they lovingly put into this film. You know, I can reduce the pleasures of Hail Caesar to I think four basic scenes that are very fun to watch. And if this film had been along the lines of these four scenes throughout, I probably would have loved the film. But unfortunately, these are the only four scenes that I remember and recommend. Now, there's one scene that involves a director who's named Lawrence Lorenz. He's played in a bit part by a very excellent Rafe Fiennes. And he's trying to massage a good line reading, trying to get, it's, it's almost like an elocution lesson. And he's trying to get a good performance in the middle of a serious and sophisticated drama from an actor he didn't really want, this ill-fitted cowboy stunt actor with a deep southern twang named Hobie Doyle, who's played by Alden Ehrenreich in what may likely be a breakthrough performance for the actor. There's this moment of back-and-forth banter and trying to get the man with this heavy drawl to say with confidence, would that it were so simple. The way that they banter back and forth is as funny a scene as any that I've seen in the golden age of screwball comedies. The, the clip is out there. You can find it online right now, and it's definitely well worth watching, even if you don't decide to see this film. Now, there's another scene that involves a lavish Busby Berkeley-style aquatic ballet number that is also every bit as lavish and as mesmerizing as those that were made by Berkeley. And it spoofs to a certain degree, specifically the 1952 Esther Williams gem, Million Dollar Mermaid. There's also a third scene later in the film. This It's a riveting song and dance number that turns into one big gay joke. It features Channing Tatum as a character named Bert Gurney, which sounds, when you hear it in the film, similar to Bert and, Bert and Ernie, uh, which itself has become kind of a gay joke reference. But Channing Tatum continues to defy every expectation by absolutely nailing what's required yet again through a terrific, well-choreographed dance and vocal performance. Not very many people probably know that Channing Tatum can also sing, and he shows it in this film. This scene, although it would be probably a little too much on the homoerotic side for its period, at least in terms of the quality of the song and dance number, it would be a gem in any old Gene Kelly musical piece. So kudos to the Coen brothers who haven't really made any kind of musical or dance films for actually nailing this moment. There's also a fourth scene. It's probably the lesser of my examples here. There's a simple moment in which Hobie is waiting for a lunch date with the uh, Carmen Miranda-like actress called Carlotta Valdez. Now, Carlotta Valdez, that's a name that references Vertigo for reasons that are unknown. Probably another one of those jokes that only the Coen brothers find funny. 
Anyway, Hobie ends up taking out a lasso while he's waiting, and he performs some impressive tricks, jumps in and out of the lasso. That's really interesting to watch. I wish there was more of that. But Now, those four scenes that I've just mentioned constitute the totality of the moments in which I was mentally engaged with Hail Caesar at all. Now, what's striking is that all four of them are merely there just to reference some of the fun of the movies of the early 1950s in some loving and spirited ways, but they aren't intrinsically necessary to have in the film. They don't really push forward anything within the loose-hanging plot of a man trying to find the right path to either take a cake job with Lockheed or to continue in his taxing career as a Hollywood employee whose responsibility it is to keep all of the studio's talent from putting a black mark on their careers or to jeopardize the films that are currently in production. Now, that plot seems to service merely the Coen brothers' need to have fun with old Hollywood. They've done it before in the style of The Hudsucker Proxy and The Substance of Barton Fink. These are two lesser appreciated back-to-back works from the Coens from the early 1990s that I personally happen to love. Not coincidentally, Barton Fink also features the same studio, Capital Pictures, which I guess perhaps could exist in the same universe, although the films are set in different eras. The parts that don't coalesce from Hail Caesar are far more prevalent, unfortunately, and that ranges anywhere from the ponderous use of Michael Gambon's narration. It's employed through some segments often, and then largely forgotten for long spells. Sometimes I think there's a segment of about 45 minutes in which you don't get any of that narration, and then you're hit up with it quite a bit again. And you, you get surprised when you hear it again suddenly. And then there, the other things that are curious, there's a lot of callbacks to the Hollywood writers discussing communist concepts that they're definitely of the era. And I think that they do merit inclusion because that happens to be a chapter in Hollywood history that is very important. But they seem to be explored within Hail Caesar without much genuine hilarity that the farcical tone of them would imply. Now, there are also some curious pairings here. We get in the film are the two stars of 21 and 22 Jump Street. You know, Jonah Hill appears here for like a hot minute. And uh, of course, I just mentioned Channing Tatum. But that's not nearly as interesting as the two stars of Highlander, Christopher Lambert and Clancy Brown, two actors you don't normally see in films. So there must have been some intent here to get both of those guys in the same movie and share another film credit. I don't know. Another one of those jokes that I think that the Coens find amusing that will probably mystify other people. It doesn't really have anything to do with the themes of the story. Certainly there's nothing at all uh, about Highlander that merits uh, a nod to in this film. But, you know, the Coens probably thought, hey, if we have Clancy Brown in this film, let's get Lambert, too. Now, there are many in-jokes for film fans, and I suspect that will mean that those with more investment in catching film references will delight in seeing the constant nods and those who just want to watch a good story independent of gratuitous name dropping are going to be left perplexed by Hail Caesar. And this, I think above all else, is the most key reason that film critics are seemingly loving Hail Caesar wholeheartedly and recommending it to people and then regular audiences are finding it an odd misfire it is definitely connecting to critics and it is not connecting to any other particular audience other than people who perhaps have fond remembrances of old hollywood and just as an aside i will tell you in the screening that i went to most of the viewers that I, that were sitting around me were definitely very silent through most of the film but there were two older people in the audience 
probably in their 70s, who would erupt in laughter at many of the scenes and many of the references. So probably because they remember fondly some of these films of the 1950s. And yet people who are younger, it's going to go either way over their head and they're going to find it to be a very strange film. Now, motifs and symbolism abound within Hail Caesar, especially in its comparison of weighty things like religion and economics uh, in their comparison to the Hollywood industry. This is not a dumb film. This is not one that seems to be put together all of a sudden without any kind of game plan. There are definitely nods here. In many ways, watching Eddie Mannix, he's very loosely based on a real person with the same name in a similar position who worked for MGM. If you've seen Hollywood Land, the character that's played by Bob Hoskins is animatics in that film. So he's trying to save the studio talent from going astray. And it reminds me, just within recent years, there was a film like Calvary in which a priest lives his days roaming around the parish, trying to ensure that his own flock keeps from going astray. And while he's doing that, he's also mulling over a decision on his future of whether to do for self or to continue to do the good work of others. In its plot structure, it's very similar here. Some people might even compare it to a film that is contemporary of the times, A Diary of a Country Priest, that was made in the early 50s as well. You know, maybe the Coens were trying to take the basic plot of that film and then convert all of the stuff about religion into all of the stuff about Hollywood. Perhaps not coincidentally, Mannix is also shown to be a devout Roman Catholic himself. The film is bookended by scenes of confession at the beginning of the day and then at the end of the day, as well as this crisis of faith that has him questioning whether to continue his devotion to an ideal that may be impractical in a world that is radically changing to non-belief, at least so he thinks. There's also some commentary on the tug of war that exists between art and commerciality as the studios try to take the talent and the vision of genuine artists and make that conform to the most broad and mainstream ways possible to gather the largest audience with the least amount of objectionable material. The very end of Hail Caesar feels just like it ends. And that's a curiously unsatisfying summation to a film that is full of many ambitious moments, even if they are flat most of the time. But it reminds me that even great filmmakers like the Coen brothers make a dud every once in a while. And I think that Hail Caesar feels too slight to be lavish in some instances and too haphazard to be incisive in others. And that causes an imbalance in the comedy that has also marred equally ineffective films like 1941 for Steven Spielberg or Inherent Vice for Paul Thomas Anderson. Great filmmakers can make a movie that just doesn't connect. And I think that despite the fact that critics tend to want to be on the side of the Coen brothers and certainly a lot of the bells and whistles of this film are intentionally speaking to people who are film historians and film buffs. I think that audiences are going to shrug at the end of watching Hail Caesar and just feel like, well, I don't know what to make of that. Let me move on to the next movie. And they never think of it again. And that's too bad because the Coen brothers make some great movies most of the time. Perhaps those with an intimate familiarity with early 1950s Hollywood, the aforementioned senior citizens and film historians, they're probably going to find more to admire here than your average film goer. But speaking as a film buff myself, while I do like and admire many of those individual moments that I mentioned earlier, I do think that Hail Caesar falls short of being as fulfilling a work as the Coen brothers usually deliver. I'm giving 
Hail Caesar, two and a half stars out of four. And two and a half stars means on my scale that it had all of the tools and the talent to be a genuinely good movie. And somehow it just never really quite comes together to be a satisfying whole. And you have to expect it with the Coen brothers every once in a while. The sense of humor tends to be a little bit too inward, too in-jokey, things that they find funny. It doesn't really translate into capturing what should be funny to us in the audience. So this feels like a movie that you're either in on the joke or you're not. And if you're not, it's going to be a very long hour and 40 minutes. Two and a half stars goes to Hail Caesar. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed the review. If you did, I do encourage you to click the subscribe button and you'll continue to get all of my film reviews downloaded to your podcast player of choice throughout the course of the year. Also, if you happen to like the review, I encourage you, if you want to support the show, leave a review on places like iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn or wherever else you download your podcasts because word of mouth is the best way that you can show your support for the show and let other people know this is a film review podcast worth checking out. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and until next time, two hours and $10 are a lot to sacrifice for bad entertainment, so I hope that you do get a lot of worth out of these podcast reviews, and hopefully I've been able to steer you correctly into some of the good stuff. <laughs>